Hi, I'm Owen. I'm the minister at Park End Presbyterian Church in Cardiff. As a minister in the Presbyterian denomination, I often get asked, why do some Christians baptise infants? So let's get into it. We'll blitz it and then we'll take some popular questions at the end. So there's two main schools of belief in this area. The first would be adult, although that's not a great term for it. Uh, credo or believers baptism. It's not great to say adult because Baptists would say that teens can be baptised. It basically requires that a person expresses evidence that they are Christians and then a church would baptise them. Then you have infant or pedo baptism, sometimes known as covenant baptism or household baptism, where Christian parents baptise their newborn babies. Now, most of the people that would watch my teaching would be Protestants and in the Western Hemisphere. So here's a list of people you may have heard of who have held to the infant Baptist view. The Apostles, but we'll get to that in a bit. Polycarp, John Chrysostom, um, Augustine of Hippo, John Calvin, Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, uh, Louis Burkov in more modern times, Charles Hodge. John Murray, B.B. Warfield, uh, Daniel Rowland, Howell Harris, George Whitfield, the Wesleys, and in right up to date times, people like Ted Donnelly and Tim Keller. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches infant baptism, as does the Westminster Confession. In Protestantism, it tends to be that the Anglicans, Presbyterians and Congregationalists are infant Baptists. And outside of Protestantism, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholics practice infant baptism, though there are differences um, of belief within those groups. And those who don't practice infant baptism would be the Baptist churches, the Pentecostals and the Brethren, by and large. Now, baptism is a sacrament. There are sacraments in the Bible. There are many. The Lord's Supper or communion or the Passover meal or the Eucharist would be another one. And the important point of sacraments is they point to the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. The sacraments are all about the Lord Jesus. That's going to be important in a bit, but let's just lay some foundations. There's a word you've probably heard if you've studied this area of theology before, and it's covenants. A covenant is a promise that God makes to people. And throughout world history, God makes various promises or covenants to different people. And there are differences in elements of these promises. Sometimes church is told to live in a certain way and they'll be blessed. And the way they live can differ to other times in world history where the church is told to live. And so God makes different promises in those types of ways at times. But here's the thing. When it comes to union with God, relationship with God, being saved and brought into the family of the living God, there is one covenant promise which underpins all those other varying promises in church life where we're told we we live it this way and then we'll live it that way amongst this group of people in this culture. There is one promise that never changes and one covenant from God that he gives to people and it's from eternity past and will run to eternity forevermore and it is called the everlasting promise. 
And you read it in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, and it's essentially this. In order to become right with God, the church must trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood for sinners on the cross. The everlasting promise of God is that there is one way to know the living God, and that is through Jesus. And the church in the Old Testament trusted in their coming Messiah, and the church in the New Testament trusts in the Messiah. And so when we read about changing covenants and promises at different times in church life and in the Bible, we're to remember this. Sometimes the picture of how we trust in Jesus or how we live it out can change, but the gospel never changes. There has never been a way to God except through Jesus. And that everlasting covenant was spelled out to Abraham by God. We'll see that in a bit. And then there are other periods of time in church life where God gave promises to Moses. And for a while they had to live out their faith slightly differently. But here's the thing. All of those covenants about how we express our faith were on top of, not instead of, the everlasting promise of God, which is faith in Jesus Christ means we are saved. So in the time of Moses, you learned about the work of Jesus Christ for sinners through lamb sacrifices, or showbread, or temples, or circumcision. And at the time of Jesus, God changed again that covenant of Moses, and today, people express the work of Jesus for them through baptism and other means. But I labour the point just at the start, because some modern Christians look to the Old Testament as if the church back then was some sort of spiritless, blind group of people who had no faith in the Son of God, and sort of carried out physical acts like circumcision instead of knowing Jesus. And so the Baptists would argue then that a sign like baptism cannot have any link or anything to do with the sign of circumcision because those were the blind old days. And now this means so much more. It's such a real clear picture of the work of Jesus that our children can't have it until they are clear in their minds about what it means. But we must remember the administrations and how we show the work of Jesus may vary at times, but the gospel doesn't. Staying on the issue of covenants for a moment. It is a mistake in biblical theology to think modern Christians like us have completely done away with everything that has gone before. One must be very careful to drive a wedge between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints especially with areas like circumcision and baptism, as we will see, because they really pointed to the everlasting covenant of how we're made right with God. And that never changes. Nowhere in the scripture is there a repeal from God about his promises to Abraham and how church gets right with God. Yes, there were other covenants nestling on top of that promise for various reasons for a while, but even they cannot be entirely dismissed. 
For example, in Jeremiah 31, 31, he speaks of this new covenant coming, but he doesn't dismiss what's gone before. And he says even what's coming is linked to the house of Israel and Judah. Modern churches are infused with the Old Testament church. I would encourage people to read Gerard von Groningen's work on the Hebrew of Jeremiah, and particularly the phraseology of Jeremiah about these covenants. But to save you the time, the word new is actually best translated renewed. He says this, as Jeremiah spoke of the renewed covenant, he did so in the context of Yahweh's covenant with creation, the patriarchs, that's chapter 33, 21, Israel at Sinai and in the desert and David, 33, 15 and 26. Jeremiah does not speak of a discontinuity of past covenants. He makes it clear that Yahweh's covenant made, expanded and administered in various situations is one continuing covenant. The Hebrew term translated new basically refers to what was there before, but appears in another renewed form, like the moon appearing as full, changes in appearance and is spoken of as the new moon. And he labours the point. We all believe there's an everlasting covenant, but even the temporal promises of how church lives that out, which do change, are not unlinked and irrelevant. For example, Ezekiel 37, 24 to 26 connects the Abrahamic Mosaic and Davidic covenants to the new covenant. Romans 3.31 shows the importance of the Mosaic covenant to that New Testament church in Rome. Romans 15.12 links the new covenant to the Davidic covenants. Romans 4.16 shows that the new covenant, the way we live today, is founded on the Abrahamic covenant. Hence, he is held up as our model Christian, if you can put it like that. Romans chapter 11 and John 15 speaks of churches today are being grafted into this old tree. We're not replacing the old tree. We're becoming part of what they had and knew. Romans 16, 20 points people backwards to the Adamic covenant. 1 Peter 3 5 to 7 draws encouragement today from Abraham. In Revelation chapter 3, 7 and Isaiah 22, 22, Jesus Christ claims he has the keys today of the house of David. Again, linking the church as one great body. Sometimes today, people just sweep away parts of the Old Testament, even parts of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, that we should be cautious against that, but to also then bundle in what was promised to Abraham and sweep away his type of faith, which he expressed in circumcision, if all that goes out the window, we modern Christians have nothing to be grafted into. It's all gone. Now, the groundwork was needed there because we are not in some fanciful new era. We have the same gospel, but different pictures. And so now let's look at how circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of something linked to that everlasting promise, which has not been swept away, namely union with the living God and life and salvation. And then we'll look at baptism. Circumcision. 
What is it? Well, in Genesis chapter 17 from verse 10 onwards, the Lord gives Abraham the sacrament of circumcision and tells him to circumcise all the males in his household when they are eight days old. In fact, he's to circumcise any male that joins his household. In Exodus chapter 12, 48, we learn that any Gentiles that wanted to join the faith and the church of Abraham also had to have this sign of circumcision. So Old Testament saints were to circumcise their males in their households as an entrance to the covenant community of Christ the Messiah in whom they trusted. And then the inner reality of that sign in the heart had to follow. The saints were to grow up in that church community as full members. And in Deuteronomy 10 and 30 and in Jeremiah 4, you hear sermons of the importance of having your heart dedicated or circumcised or set apart or cut off from the world to God. And if they didn't, they would forego the blessings of the sign that they received. They'd be covenant breakers, which is a fearful position to be in then and now. And in Genesis chapter 17, 1 to 14, we learn that the covenant given to him was not primarily a national or racial one, but a spiritual one, full of spiritual blessings. And yes, there were distinctions in it on how it would affect life politically, nationally, economically, but it all flowed from a spiritual principle. So if it wasn't in its rawest form an ethnic political sign and there was more going on than that, what was going on? Well, Romans 4.11 explains. Abraham received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So we see that circumcision was a mark of received righteousness, faith righteousness, justification by faith, the everlasting covenant. And here's the key. Babies received the sign of justification by faith. And Abraham was one of the very few saints in the Bible that received that sign after he had faith. The overwhelming majority of Christian males in the Bible received the sign first before they believed. Although we'll get into just how much babies might believe a bit later on. This is why Moses preached those sermons in Deuteronomy 10, 11, 30 and Jeremiah in chapter 4 and 9. You have the sign of union with Christ and righteousness. Keep living it as we teach today. And notice this, even when the church is unfaithful, the sermons that God tells the prophets to preach are never this. Oh, you should have waited to have faith before you got the sign. Stop circumcising the children until you all sort yourselves out. No, the Lord never backs down from the sign first. Well, this leads us to, what has this got to do with today's sacrament of baptism? Well, what is baptism? We know general answers, but in its basest form, it is not the washing away of sin. It is much more than that though I'm not downplaying the significance of that. It cannot be the basic meaning of baptism 
because the Lord Jesus is baptized. And in Matthew 3.13 and onwards, it says it's to fulfill all righteousness. So there's something large going on here. Union with God. Being right with God. United to Christ and the Father by the Spirit is what's going on with baptism. We'll see that in a bit in Colossians. But here's Romans 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, in the Old Testament, babies were given the sign of justification by faith, being in the family of God, part of gospel privileges and promises of church life, union. And for non-Jews like me and maybe you today, we have baptism, a sign of union with Christ. Faith and righteousness and peace with God. All the things spelled out to Abraham, the father of our faith. And the Mosaic Covenant, which Jesus Christ and his church fulfill, is not something that we express that everlasting promise through at the moment. Remember, covenants were put on top of the everlasting one to express it in different ways. And Christians like me are told to express my faith in uh, a culture here different to the time of Moses. But unless you believe the Old Testament saints were part of a different gospel, which was ordered in a different way, or that they could connect with God and be united to him outside of faith in the Messiah, then we must agree that even the Mosaic Covenant was packed full of spiritual expression of the everlasting faith in Jesus. And circumcision was a primary example of what that was. And so we come to Colossians chapter 2. Now I think Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 to 12 is misunderstood by infant Baptists as well as Baptists. Here circumcision and baptism are linked together. But the mistake some people make I believe is to think that baptism fulfills circumcision. Where it doesn't. Remember the groundwork we laid at the start. Circumcision and baptism are linked, but not that they feed to each other. They are linked because they both point to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church in Colossae were Gentiles on the whole. Yet the Apostle Paul tells them that they are truly circumcised because they have the reality to which the outward circumcision pointed. They have put off the sinful nature in their hearts. They are united to God. Here's verse 11 of Colossians 2. In Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And here's verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You see, this reality, the true circumcision of 
being united to God. Is not done by human hands when a male is eight days old, but the circumcision is done by Christ when we are born again by being joined to him in his death and resurrection. But remember verse 12. Paul points to the baptism of the Colossians as the sign by which they pointed to this reality of being united. So baptism points to the same reality that circumcision does. Two sacraments, one reality. The church there was circumcised through baptism, not pointing to each other, but pointing to Jesus. Circumcision in a bloody way, baptism in a watery way, both of which are tremendous pictures of the work of Jesus. And therefore, to baptise children and to proclaim the gospel promises over them, to treat them as full members of the church, though we'll get to taking communion in the Q&A, and to urge them as they grow up with us to own the meaning together of the sign that we've received through baptism. Together we grow with Jesus Christ. Also, Philippians 3 verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision continues today through baptism. What's the difference? Well, circumcision was for males and showed the work of Jesus Christ in a bloody way. Baptism is for females and males and shows the work of Christ in a watery way. The Old Testament church had the sign of blood. The New Testament church has the sign of water. That's probably what's referred to in 1 John 5, 6 to 8. The blood of circumcision, the water of baptism and the witness of the spirit testify to the gospel. So let's take some questions and points of discussion and some answers. I would put to my Baptist brothers and sisters in the Lord listening, why do we exclude children now when they have always been included in full church life? And where's the biblical warrant for this dedication, this sort of halfway house? Children have always been part of church, recognised as God's people, fulfilling obligations and getting stuck in. Now, some of our Baptist brothers and sisters would object to this point by saying, well, children might fall away. They can't profess faith and we're forcing them into a position. Here's a few answers to that. God knew the potential liabilities of children when he ordered them in. The liabilities of children, by the way, are far less, according to Jesus, than the liabilities of adults who profess faith. Also, perversion and abuse of God's ways are not reason to ditch God's ways. That's true of adult baptism or child baptism. It was known that Esau would not carry the blessing or Ishmael, but they were still circumcised. Abraham and Sarah were not to deprive the children of the sign. Think of it like a wedding ring to those who are faithful in marriage. It testifies of great blessing for those who abuse marriage. The ring becomes a testimony against them. But it ought to symbolise what's true of the wearer. Next, 
We're to do it because it pleases God that this happens. Next, at one level, it's quite contrary to scripture to instantly dismiss faith in babies. John the Baptist was a lively Christian, full of the Holy Spirit, while still in the womb in Luke 1.41. Jeremiah was sanctified from the moment of conception in Jeremiah 1.5. There may not be reason to automatically deny faith to babies. Also, households were still told to be baptised whether each individual person had professed faith or not. In the Old and New Testament, intelligent repentance and faith are not the conditions of salvation in the case of infants. Let's discuss another objection. But there's nothing in the Bible which tells us to baptise babies. Well, express commandments are not the only reason to do things. There's such a thing as deducing principles from Scripture. I mean, there are some Christians that believe there isn't one neat verse about the Trinity. But all Christians believe that the Trinity is all over the Word of God. There's no specific command in the Bible for me to not go past 30 miles an hour driving down that road. But yet we deduce from the verses about obeying the government that I should not do that. Sometimes the Bible does not neatly command things which are a given and which are obvious. However, there's no declaration in Scripture that children are no longer to receive this sign of union with God. Perhaps a better question, therefore, is not where does Scripture explicitly teach infant baptism, but rather... Where does it reverse God's command to Abraham to administer this covenant sign and seal to children of believers? Remember, even the most ardent dismisser of the Old Testament covenants would agree that it's inescapable that to a degree there's a flow and a link between them all. Notwithstanding the emphasis that we have gone back to the days of Abraham, and think about the children of those times. Noah and his righteousness meant his family was blessed. Abraham was to apply the righteousness which is by faith to his whole family in Genesis 17. And all Israelites, the ancient church. Children of believers in the Old Testament were set apart from the fallen pagan world and blessed signally loved and recognised as being so. Another one. Are we now in an age where the sign comes after faith? Is it now believe and be baptised, as we read in the New Testament? Well, think of the context of those verses. The gospel, after Pentecost, the gospel exploded around planet Earth and penetrated pagan cultures in a way like never before, breaking down the barriers of language and culture. And it was probably more often or not heard by adults first. And of course, the message to outright outsiders when they first hear the gospel is believe and be baptised, because they haven't been. But even then, as we'll see in a bit, their children get included in this baptism. Now, household baptisms get dismissed rather too easily by some theologians. 
In the New Testament, thousands of godless pagans were converted and saved and born again. Only nine of them are mentioned by name, and of that nine, five of their entire households were baptised. Now, in the Old Testament, a household included babies who were eight days old. Is it different in New Testament households? No wonder our church father, Oregon, said we have received the tradition of infant baptism from the apostles. Let me ask a few more probing questions. Is the New Testament sacrament any more of a matter of faith than the Old Testament sacrament? Is the gospel any different in the Old Testament and New? The gospel. Why would we think that children would be excluded from the sacrament of baptism when they were explicitly included in the sacrament of circumcision? Now, our Baptist brothers and sisters do, to a degree, have to be dispensational in their theology, believing that God organises the gospel very differently at different times in the Bible. But if we recognise that there's a straightforward continuity, a link with Jesus Christ in the gospel and the sacraments of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 to 4, and to realise that that covenant of circumcision pointed to justification by faith, we confess, therefore, infant baptism. Let me hammer this home a bit more. If children born of church parents were given the sign and seal of the covenant and therefore the richest blessings which church life disclosed, and if the New Testament economy is an elaboration and an extension of this covenant of which circumcision was the sign, are we to believe that infants in this age are to be excluded? Is the new covenant less generous than the Abrahamic? Are infants of the new covenant and of modern Christian parents more inhibited to the grace of God? And do we find any hint or intimation of such reversal in the Old or New Testaments? I believe that the Bible is quite clear that children of believers are viewed as holy and clean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14, the children of just one believing parent are seen as holy. Holy there as a very minimum means privileged and connected to God, set apart from the world's common defilements. And I believe it's a beautiful thing to say to our children, not you must be saved from the world and the evil and your pagan ways, but be faithful to the fact that you are in the community of God May we together know personal salvation, but corporate salvation. May we bless God for his riches upon us. His sign and seal is on us. And we are reminded that he is a faithful God who keeps his promises. 
And it's a worry, and I see this in some circles of Christianity, when young people who do believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth, and who are wonderful church members who put church family before themselves and are full of the good works that God tells them to do, they are trapped and cornered and made to shrivel back away from enjoying those things as fruit of their salvation into this introspective, self-centered, ethereal type spirituality where they are subtly taught that until they own it here and believe rather self-righteously that now I am in the right position to believe that Christ died for me. Until they are there, the sacraments, the church life and the corporate church life mean nothing. And our young people who already carry the weight of the world on their shoulders are tossed to and fro with modern life and changing hormones are made to jump through hoops that we create as a culture and which vary from local church to local church and country to country and decade to decade of what a true Christian really is. When we reduce the physical spirituality which we find in the Bible, we are left with a tormenting view of self which shifts like sand and has nothing to do with the complete work of Jesus for church. Now, to parents who might think, I'm leaving my child to grow up and make their own choice. I'm not sure. If we leave our children unbaptized, we aren't leaving them free to exercise their own free choice in a democratic universe. Instead, and we are depriving them of what they have a legitimate right to. And we are making them covenant breakers in the eyes of God. Rapid fire Q&A to close. Were they babies in the New Testament who were being baptised or were they children at an age of understanding? Matthew 18, 1 to 6, 19, 13 to 14, Mark 9, 36, 37, and chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, and Luke 18, 15 to 17, we see that children are brought in on the whole. So many of them were below this age of understanding, whatever that is. In Luke 18, 15, the children were babies. If my parents weren't Christians when I was baptised, should I be rebaptized? I don't believe the word of God teaches that in such a case rebaptism is needed. According to Matthew 28:19, baptism simply requires the use of the triune name, Father, Son and Spirit. If I were to meet someone from a Unitarian church or from oneness Pentecostalism, they never received the Christian baptism at all and would need to be baptised. It's interesting that even people in Acts 19 who received John's baptism were to be rebaptized. John's baptism didn't appear to include the triune name. John's baptism was a temporary sacrament simply to prepare the nation of Israel for the ministry of Jesus. For unbelievers, it was a baptism of repentance. For believers, though, like Jesus, it couldn't have been that because he was sinless. Should babies and really young people in church take communion? I don't think so. Is it inconsistent to baptize babies and not let them take communion? I don't think so. Here's why. Babies didn't partake of the Passover 
either the diet would have been unreasonable for one, but baptism, though does signify union, also does signify the cleaning of the pollution of sin. But the Lord's Supper involves remembrance and discerning of the Lord's body, which requires intelligence. So baptism represents something once and for all. The Lord's Supper, though, is to be repeated in the life of a believer. Baptism is the initiation. The Lord's Supper is a continued responsibility. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that there must be intelligible understanding. In Acts chapter 2, why did circumcised Jews also get baptised if they had the sign already? Well, although they already had the sacrament which pointed to new birth, it was important to share the sacrament that all the new international church members were enjoying. So in that first generation, there were some church members that had both circumcision and baptism. I'll end with a rapid fire list of verses for more evidence of the continuity of circumcision and baptism. They are both initiatory rites. Genesis 17, 10 to 11, Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38 to 39, and Acts 8, 12 to 13. They both signify an inward reality. Romans 2, 28 to 29, Colossians 2, 11 to 12, Philippians 3, 3. They both picture the death of the old man and sin. Romans 6, 3 to 7, Colossians 2, 11 to 12. They both represent repentance. Jeremiah 4, 4, 9, 25, Leviticus 23, 40 to 41, Acts 2, 38. They both represent regeneration. Romans 2, 28 to 29, Titus 3, 5. They both represent justification by faith. Romans 4, 11 to 12, Colossians 2, 11 to 14. They both represent a cleansed heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Chapter 30, verse 6, Isaiah 52, verse 1, Acts 22, verse 16, Titus 3, verse 5 to 7. They both represent communion with God. Genesis 17, 7, Exodus 19, 5 to 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and Hebrews 8, verse 10. They both indicate citizenship in Israel. Genesis 17, verse 9, Galatians 3, 26 to 29, Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, and 4 and 5. They both indicate separation from the world. Exodus 12, 48, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, Ephesians 2, 12. And they both either lead to blessings or curses. Romans 2, 25, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 12, and 11, verses 28 to 30. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.